You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. Um, Today's reading is two parts of Matthew 5. Starting in verses 1 to 12, and then we're skipping over to 38 to 48. That's Matthew 5, if you want to find that in your Bibles, or it's overhead. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now verses 38 to 48. You have heard it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, John. Thanks, Leslie, and good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you, uh, each one of you, and Happy New Year. Uh, And to those who are, uh, we have people watching online, don't we? So bless you, and Happy New Year to you, and glad to have you sharing in our gathering today. We're small in number, but it's quality that counts, isn't it? So uh, quality over quantity, that's, uh, so bless you. Lovely to see your faces and share together. I hope there was uh, joy for you at Christmas time. Christmas is a sort of mixed experience, isn't it? There's joy and there's a fair bit of stress that goes with it. This year, a bit of extra COVID stress for everybody uh, made it all a little bit more challenging. Rapid antigen tests beforehand and so forth uh, made it all just a little bit more difficult than usual. Uh, My contribution to the family Christmas this year was to produce the traditional um, Christmas pudding, you know, with homemade custard and ice cream so that was my objective and well kind of the way it went in my mind was that I would have a tray and on it would be this gorgeous round 
pudding that I would carry it out. What actually happened was between the kitchen and the uh, table, it kind of disintegrated. It was as if a volcano went off in the middle of the pudding and it kind of crept out, crept out to the edges of the, sorry about that. Yeah, so uh, the, the ice cream is all melted. The only thing that really worked was the custard. And then when you've made custard well, you haven't really accomplished much, have you? So the whole thing was all a little bit disappointing and a little bit sad. And I do have a sermon that I preached before called Let's Cancel Christmas. And I feel like I'd like to preach that today. Um, but, but I'm not going to preach that because today we begin a brand new series. It's a series that Mike has put together for us called Practicing the Way of Jesus. You know, Jesus called himself the way and the first Christians were called followers of the way. Now, that's because Christianity was, was never just a bunch of doctrines. It was always a way of life. Yes, it was ideas and doctrines, but also habits and habitual actions, patterns of behavior, moral choices, a worldview, an all-encompassing worldview with a lifestyle to go with it. And so over the next few weeks, weeks, we'll be thinking about the way of Jesus and how we can practice the way of Jesus in our own lives. Next week, Mike's going to speak on silence and solitude. The week after that, on dealing with your past. And to end the series, Dave will be back to speak about flesh and blood spirituality. Today, though, I'm speaking about gentleness and about nonviolence. Nonviolence and gentleness. It's a theme which I think we need to recover in the church. It's an essential element of the way of Jesus, and yet it's almost invisible in the contemporary church. And so what I want to do today is to begin by showing you how Jesus practiced and taught nonviolence. And then at the end, I want to speak for a little while in praise of gentleness. So firstly, Jesus practiced non-violence. Um, Jesus ministered in a time and a place of extreme violence. The small nation of Israel uh, in which Jesus ministered was under the thumb of the Roman Empire, which ruled from one end of the Mediterranean to the other and then some. And it ruled with an iron fist. And of all the people that were incorporated into the Roman Empire, um, the Jews, the, the, the occupants of Israel, the Jewish people, were unique in that they loved their traditions and their practices more than their own lives. And the history of the Roman province of Judea out there on the out there on the eastern end of the Roman Empire, the history of the Roman occupation of Israel was, was, a, was a terrible cycle of Roman provocation, of Jewish rebellion, and then violent retribution. And we catch glimpses of this violence in the pages of the New Testament. Um, I'm not going to preach, let's cancel Christmas, but we never preach that story, that Christmas story, which is right there in the pages of the gospel, it's the story of the day when Herod, ruling on behalf of the Romans, 
killed all the baby boys two years old or less in Bethlehem so as to prevent the rise of a rival native-born king. Now, there's a Christmas story that never appears on the Christmas cards, and uh, we never preach about it. There it is, a glimpse into the... the, There is violence as public policy, violence deeply born in the culture and that time. And the Roman policy, of course, of crucifying anyone suspected of attempting to subvert the Roman rule, that was their public health campaign. You know, when you go to the... You know, folks, when you go and buy your cigarettes at the corner shop and, 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 and on the box there are those pictures of, you know, eye, kind of diseased eyeballs and everything, that's a kind of contemporary public health campaign. But in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was the public health campaign. And the message was, like the cigarette box, this will happen to you if you smoke. The cross was, this will happen to you if you subvert the Roman rule. That's why the cross was never just low on the ground. It was lifted up so that everyone could see this is what happens to you if you rebel against the Roman Empire. This is violence as public policy. No wonder then that the Jews boiled with resentment against the Romans, and little wonder that in the century before and after Jesus, um, every decade a leader would rise up, lead a rebellion, which would then be put down savagely. This was the context into which Jesus began to publicly announce the coming of God's kingdom. And for his fellow Jews, this could only mean some kind of military rebellion against the Romans. That's the only category they had to fit this message of the coming of the kingdom of God. Yay, the kingdom of God is coming, which means expel the Romans, which means violence. And for the Romans, in exactly the same way, the the declaration of a new kingdom could only mean that the Jews were once again spoiling for a fight, that violence was coming. How astonishing then, given the context of violence in that time and that place, how astonishing that Jesus explicitly refused to perpetrate any kind of violence. You know, there was a day when the people discovered that Jesus was someone who could miraculously feed you. Now, that's the kind of king you want, isn't it? Miraculously feed you, no more work, just food on tap. And they came and tried to take him, make him king. And what did Jesus do? He slipped away so that the people could not make him the figurehead of some sort of rebellion. Jesus himself never took up arms. And you'll remember that day, you remember the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter himself took up a sword in order to defend Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He says to Peter, if you lift up the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he healed the man who was injured by Peter. And when Pilate, Pontius Pilate, tried to get his mind around the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming, Jesus explained to him that my followers will not fight for me because my kingdom is not from this world, but from heaven. Even when the cross 
was in view. Even when his life was heading to the cross, Jesus did not back down from his refusal to engage in violence to protect himself or his disciples. And on the cross itself, as Jesus experienced all the violence which the Roman Empire could administer to a man, he didn't lash out with rage or denunciation or threats, which was very common. Even as the violence of empire enveloped him, you know our Lord responded with grace and kindness and forgiveness, for goodness sake. Jesus practiced non-violence. And the teaching of Jesus also made it clear that he was opposed to the exercise of violence. Uh, thanks, Leslie, for reading from Matthew 5. The beginning of the Sermon on, Mount makes, on the Mount makes this abundantly clear. Take the Beatitudes, which are those series of blessings at the beginning of the sermon, where Jesus declares blessings on the people of the kingdom. These are the people who will rule in the coming kingdom of God. How will they arrive at their possession of the kingdom? How will they make their, stake their claim on the kingdom and be cut part of it? Not by violence. These are people who will rule in the kingdom, but they will arrive at their possession of the kingdom by surprising means. Earthly kingdoms come by force and by superiority and by military means and by violence, but the kingdom of God comes through and to people who have no military power. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are weak and powerless and they know it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, the self-controlled. I'll come back to that a little bit later. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who see the needs of others and far from exploiting it, they show mercy. They respond to the needs of others with compassion. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who determine to make their lives instruments, not of violence, but of peace, they will be called the children of God. Part of God's family, sharing the family likeness, inheriting a share of the family business. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, those who are on the receiving end of the violent attack of others. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so the sermon begins with Jesus speaking into existence his new kingdom people who will rule and reign in the kingdom of God by means of gentleness and as peacemakers. And then later in Matthew 5, Jesus teaches his disciples more concretely about this way of non-violence. Israel's ancient law uh, addressed the question of violence with the principle of restraint, of self-restraint. Um, if someone assaulted you, attacked you, and injured one of your eyes, you were not entitled to attack both their eyes, just one. Hence, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You see, it's a principle of restraint, so violence does not escalate. But Jesus 
takes this even further and he says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Don't retaliate. Don't avenge yourself. No payback. Now, folks, please don't misunderstand this teaching. What Jesus is teaching here is not weak submission to violence. What he's saying is if someone strikes you on your face, then look them in the eye and choose not to retaliate. He's saying take charge of your inner world. Resist the impulse to avenge yourself and present the other cheek. And in so doing, you offer another way forward. You offer a contrast to the lazy stupidity of violence. And you show by your actions that the impulse to violence can be tamed in the human heart. And that that becomes an invitation to the violent person to find another way forward. There is another way to live. It opens the way also to a different kind of relationship between those two people. In verse 48 of chapter 5, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In other words, go beyond their demand. Someone's trying to dispossess you of something you own. Don't resist them. Respond with generosity and grace. Verse 41 is similar. If anyone forces you to go a mile, then go two miles. In that day, a Roman soldier was entitled to force a Jew to carry his kit for a thousand paces. That's a Roman mile. And, and this was demeaning and humiliating to the average Jewish person in the street. It was a moment when the power imbalance between Rome and Israel made itself felt on some dusty Israeli road. You can imagine the seething resentment of a Jewish person. Imagine what they would feel as they struggle along, bearing the imposition of this load they must carry for the hated Romans. What do you think the tone of the conversation was between those two fellow travelers for that thousand paces? It wouldn't be pleasant, I don't think. I imagine the Jewish person bearing this load would be muttering under their breath in Aramaic or Hebrew some colorful curse, you know, like may the fleas of a thousand camels nest in your beard or something like that. And, and I can imagine that the, you know, the, the, this Jewish guy is carrying some of the Roman guy's weaponry. Where will he want him? He'll want him up ahead where he can keep an eye on him, but not listen to him. That's the scene. And Jesus now teaches something new to that moment. He teaches this, not only choose willingly to carry this load and to bear this imposition, do it by choice. And when the thousand paces are done, well, then go the second thousand. In other words, make it clear that you're carrying this by choice, not by force. You're doing it by choice. And not only that, but, you know, the law that permitted the soldier to make a Jewish person carry their load was also a law which prohibited them 
from making the Jewish person go two miles. Now we've got a completely different scene in which the Christian Jewish person is carrying the load and charging ahead and gets to the thousand pace mark and keeps on going. And the Roman soldier running after going, stop, stop, stop carrying my load. The Roman, see how the power balance suddenly has changed? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. It's not a case of meek submission to force, but of shifting the moral ground, taking the ground morally. So Jesus taught and practiced nonviolence, and the way of Jesus is the way of nonviolence. Now, before I move on and talk about gentleness, I probably need to think, talk just for a moment about the cleansing of the temple. You remember that day when Jesus goes into the temple and, and drives out the money changers, overturns the tables, uh, taking a cord. He drives the animals which were there uh, for, the, for the sacrifices. He drives them out of the temple. Um, that occasion is often invoked in order to argue that Jesus was violent and that he was capable of violence. I need to address that. It's true, of course. This was an assertive action on Jesus' part. And yet, that single occasion, and there was only one occasion, must be held in the context of the nonviolent teaching and life that Jesus both spoke about and demonstrated. It's also important to note that that action wasn't done in the heat of the moment. It wasn't spontaneous. In fact, we're told explicitly that Jesus went and looked and went away and came back the next day. It was calm and deliberate. It was also deeply symbolic. In it, for a moment, Jesus halted the sacrificial business of the temple as a symbol that he himself was about to replace all that he'd accomplished by his death and resurrection. The disruption was real, but it was temporary, lasting certainly less than a day, maybe just a few hours. And yes, the temple precincts were thrown into disarray, but no reports of injury or death, and soon the temple was back in business. And I think it's probably best then to understand that as a moment of what we might call civil disobedience. It was assertive, but it was not violent. It was dramatic, it was theatrical, it was public, but it was deeply symbolic, like an acted parable. It was a prophetic declaration in deeds as well as words. And so I think the dramatic disruption of the temple doesn't force us to change our picture of Jesus as someone who both taught and practiced the way of nonviolence. And I think, too, I need to, at this point, pause to acknowledge that there may well be some amongst us for whom violence is not just a concept. You know, we can talk about violence, but there will be folk amongst us for whom uh, experiencing violence at the hands of others is a real life experience. It may not even, it may be happening to you every day and every week. And I hope what I've said already assures you, reassures you, that Jesus himself opposes exactly that kind of behavior, and that this way of treating you is unambiguously wrong. And no matter what that violent person has said to you, 
in the past or is saying to you now, you don't deserve to be treated this way. And let me encourage you, dear brother or sister, if that's your situation, then please make sure another brother or sister knows what you are going through. Uh, shame can silence us. Loyalty even can silence us. You need someone to help you find your way through this. Choose wisely a person who you think is mature enough to hear you, to support you, to pray with you as you work your way through and out of this terrible time in, in your life. So now just to finish, I want to speak for a moment in praise of gentleness. I want to speak about the gentle way of Jesus. So far, I've been speaking really negatively. You know, Jesus was not violent. Jesus taught non-resistance and non-violence. But the way of Jesus can be expressed positively as the way of gentleness. And Jesus' own teaching points us in exactly that direction. Think back to the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek, I think, really misleads us. Meek sounds an awful lot like weak. And I think that's what we hear Jesus saying. Um, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those poor, sad people who let everybody else walk over the top of them. I think that's what we hear Jesus saying. But the word translated meek comes from the Greek word for bridle. That's, you know, the device that you put on a horse um, that, that controls the horse. A horse is not a weak creature. So what we're talking about is not weakness, but strength under control. We're talking about something close to self-control. And I think the best word for it in our language is gentleness. That the, the habitual choice, the steady choice, not to act wildly or forcefully, but to act with constraint gentle person is the one who has himself under control, herself under control, and is therefore able to respond to other people in calm, measured, and appropriate ways. And so let's just explore that briefly, the way of Jesus as the way of gentleness. Let me think first about gentle hands. Our actions are to demonstrate that we are under control. And that means that we don't give way to the temptation to avenge ourselves, to lash out, to strike other people when we feel hurt or irritated or disappointed. We followers of Jesus are to use our hands to work for the benefit of those around us. We put our hands to labor for the benefit of the people that we are responsible for and for the others who come into our midst. And our touch must be respectful and considerate and tender and soothing. And just to sharpen the application there a little bit, if you are a parent, then you've probably had to decide whether you will discipline your children physically or not. And I know you can argue in favor of physical punishment on the basis of some Old Testament texts. And so for that reason, I, I'm not going to, try to rule that out for Christian parents. But I will say this, do not smack your children out of anger. 
The whole point of parental discipline is to teach your child to be self-controlled, to teach them this very quality of gentleness, of being bridled. And if we lash out at our children in anger, what, what are we teaching them? We're teaching them that it's okay to lose control. It's okay to, loot, to let your anger boil over into violence. Look, if, if, if you feel that you have a duty to physically punish your children, then, brother or sister, do not do it in the heat of the moment. And actually, if you let that moment pass without being violent, without lashing out, very soon you will find another way forward and discover you didn't have to hit out anyway. We raised four children without hitting them. Don't have to hit your kids. But I encourage you as parents to have gentle hands and gentle words. The way of Jesus is the way of gentle speech. Jesus himself always had a wise and helpful word for everyone. Paul says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. And our speech needs to be like that as well. Always surprising people with encouragement and affirmation and blessing and prayer. Always speaking a way that adds to the conversation and imparts a gift to other people. And that, of course, rules out all kinds of unhelpful speech. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension. Those are just a few of the works of the sinful nature that Paul lists in Galatians 5.20. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. All of those are out of step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it there in Galatians 5, and have no place in the kingdom of God. Fits of rage, no place in the kingdom of God. The things we say to each other have a lasting impact on each other for good and for ill. And with our words, we open up spaces for each other to walk into. And if those words are hateful and angry, we're opening a doorway to hateful and angry actions. But if our words, on the other hand, are gentle and wise and insightful and gracious, then we open up a pathway to life and growth and maturity. Gentle hands, gentle words, gentle heart. Thinking now about the inner world, what drives us, what makes us who we are. We live in an era um, which I think can best be described as the era of the empowered individual. Our mythology, our legends are about how you take an ordinary mild-mannered Clark Kent and turn him into a superman. The empowered individual, Donald Trump, personifies this. And in my mind, it explains some of his power. People love to see a rule-breaking, transgressive, empowered individual. Empowered individualism. That's the spirit of our age. Living with an expectation of lots of power, power over our world, power over things, power over time and space, power over other people. And that expectation of power has a deeply corrupting effect on us, especially when 
we begin to feel our lives are heading in the opposite direction. When our pay packet seems less this year than it was last year. When our family seems more chaotic than it used to be. When a pandemic, for goodness sake, begins to tell you what you can't do, delimits the scope of your life. Under those circumstances of, 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 of constriction, of delimitation, our hearts can be filled with anger, with resentment, and out of that, we can lash out in violence. But the way of Jesus leads us in a very different direction. Jesus described his heart like this. You want to know the heart of Jesus? Here it is in his own words. He said of himself, I am gentle and humble of heart, lowly of heart, gentle at the heart. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And in following Jesus, we learn that the big problem in our lives is not our circumstances. It's our own hearts. The main issue in our world is not power over other people, power over other things, power over money. It's power over ourselves. It's the power to be self-controlled. And so when we feel powerless, when we feel our power slipping away from us, there is this temptation to lash out with rage. But the followers of Jesus, feeling their power slipping away, have this opportunity to go forward into that more limited space, trusting God is still with us. And we can still grow in this. There's plenty of space to live, to grow, to love, to serve, to become the people God wants us to be, to grow into the gentle heart of our Lord Jesus. Or maybe the other way around, to let the gentle heart of Jesus grow in us. So the way of Jesus is the way of gentleness, the way of nonviolence. It's how Jesus lived. And it's what he taught. Now, folks, violence has so dominated our thinking that I suspect we hear this as the moral code of losers. And that to choose the way of Jesus is, as it were, to put ourselves at the end of the queue, to resign ourselves to always coming last in the contest of life, to use the common metaphor, it's to consign ourselves to being everybody's doormat. I suspect that's how we hear this ethic of gentleness. So I want to finish by making sure you know that as far as Jesus was concerned, the gentle people are on the winning side of history. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Hallelujah. If the game of life is a contest for the ownership of the world, it's the gentle people who win in the end. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. And not just at the end either. Gentleness gives us a strength in our day-to-day -day lives. We caught a glimpse of that earlier when I spoke about the person who turns the other cheek. Remember? And in that, they refuse to be 
intimidated by their opponent and instead create a new way forward. And a glimpse of it in the person who takes the soldier's kit another thousand paces and turns the tables. There's a power in gentleness and a strength in it. And I've put this teaching to test to the test in my own life as God has given me grace. Folks, I can testify that I have overcome violent and angry people by gentleness. I have endured at times extreme provocation with gentleness. There have been times when I know I have reached the heart of my enemy with gentleness. There have been times where I've lost the argument and won the heart of my opponent. When I've lost the political battle and won the spiritual battle. And how? By gentleness. Now, I still have enemies to win. I still have conflicts to resolve. And I hope to win those as well (laughs) by gentleness. There's no other way than winning by gentleness. And in fact, as God gives me strength, I intend to win the world with gentleness. That's the way of Jesus, the gentle way of Jesus. I want to encourage you to follow in the way of our gentle Lord. Next week, Mike will talk about silence and solitude. Bless you guys. Thank you.